This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code DEVCHAT at Sentry.io. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another Ruby Rogues podcast. I'm David Kamira, and today on our panel, we have Eric Berry. Hey, everybody. And our poor Chuck is not feeling well today, so he is sitting this one out. So it is just Eric and I today. And today I thought we would just talk about our development environments, kind of what our setup is, what we would maybe like it to be, some pros and cons of it, and just the overall general direction. Because a lot of times we go into depth about the actual technology that we're using, and we never really talk about the interface in which we actually communicate to that technology. And it's something that everyone has to deal with. And so, Eric, what is your setup like? You know, where do you usually work? Do you have a office space or do you just kind of sit on your couch? And what's, what's your hardware like? Yeah, sure. Um, so to start off with, I work at home. Uh, lucky, luckily, I get to work from home. I uh, have a room in my basement, which is completely set up with everything that an old man like me could love. So if you if you ever see this on screen, I got my bookshelf behind me. I got big old signed posters to the side of me. I got my guitar to the side of me. Um, kind of like the uh, the geek toys on shelves all around me. My my hardware setup is I'm running on the uh, 2018 MacBook Pro. The not the not the new. Actually, it might be the 2017 MacBook Pro. It's the uh, the one with 16 gig of RAM, and uh, it's not that new fancy one with like 40 cores, but the one before that <laughs> works really well. And I did have a 13 inch, and I ended up upgrading because I found that the 13 inch, although it is very very convenient and it works just fine when you plug it into a monitor. Uh, I do a lot of traveling and I do a lot of remote work, so it makes it really hard for me to do that. Now, one of the things I do have, though, is uh, an iPad, which whenever I go somewhere, I pull out the iPad and set it next to it. And I use something called Duet. Now, Duet allows mm-hmm. me to uh, extend my desk, my desktop into my iPad, and they've they've really uh, I, I've been using them for a very long time, but they've they've really upped their game, and it's now very very fast, and you no longer have to have a cord to use that, so it's it's pretty awesome. And then my pride and joy, which my wife recently bought me because one of my monitors died, is I have this, it's a curved ultra-wide monitor by LG. It's a 38-inch monitor, and it is literally like taking up most of my desk. And <laughs> it's gorgeous. Every time I come down and look at it, I get all giddy. So, 
Yep, that is my hardware setup. I'm not a uh, mechanical keyboard guy. I think those are annoying as hell. So I, I just stick with the the Apple uh, super flat keyboard and touchpad. But one of the things I have that makes it super, super nice is this thing called a best stand. And this thing is a, it's like a, a holster for your keyboard and your touchpad to sit in. So it's one big unit and it's pretty cheap online. It's pretty cheap on Amazon, but I really enjoy it. I've been using those forever. So if you ever need to like grab your keyboard and, and touchpad, you can just pick it up in one big chunk and it works really well. So what about you, Dave? What do you got? So I have a bit of a Frankenstein setup where I go through computers pretty often. It's not always that I want the newest shiny thing, but usually my needs change. And as my needs change, so does the hardware to match those needs. So when I started getting into Ruby on Rails development several years ago, I did not have a Mac. I did not have access to a Mac. So I naturally tried other routes. So I would use a Windows machine. You know, I had a gaming computer, so I stopped gaming because I met my wife and she did not like me wasting my time playing games. So I was programming instead. So I had a Windows computer. And with that Windows computer, this was before Docker was a thing or really mainstream. So I had a virtual box and that virtual box had the Ubuntu. Um, I think it was Ubuntu 12. So 12.04 LTS or maybe it was 10.04 LTS. So that was where I had the Ruby interpreter. And then I would just use my Windows machine and Sublime Text to actually do the code editing. So it wasn't a great setup, but it was still highly usable and functional. You know, I would just do port forwarding so I could access on my local browser port 3000 for the web interface and everything. So fast forward through several, several, several years, my environment has changed. It's became a bit more proper. So today I am a bit overkill with my setup. I have a baseline iMac Pro. So that came out end of last year, I believe. But our local store, Micro Center, had a deal on it at the beginning of the year, $1,000 off. So I went out and I bought one because that was a really good deal. And I was already in the market for a new computer. And the only other option would be an iMac. So because I do a lot of work at home, I like having the desktop. You know, I don't need the laptop to tote around with me or have sitting on the desk. And I really like the real estate of the iMac Pro. So it was a $4,000 investment, but because I'm basically on my computer more hours in the day than I'm sleeping or doing other stuff, you know, to me, it was a, a good investment. So I actually got the wall mount for that. So it's wall mounted behind me. And then to the left and right, I also have wall mounted two 1440p monitors. So my setup is kind of crazy. And it's, it's one that I really have come to enjoy having the three monitors for all my development. But overall, I think it's a bit overkill as far as what's really needed for a development environment. I really could get rid of the two monitors and just have the one 27 inch 
to do all my development. You know, you have that control left and right that you can use to switch between uh, different desktops on the main monitor. And that really could suffice. But I do like having just the at a glance real estate space. So that's really my monitor and computer setup. As far as the other bit of hardware, uh, I have a ergonomic keyboard just because I had bad wrists from injuries when growing up. So usually if I'm typing on one of those slim keyboards, my wrist will really start hurting. So I have a really old, it's not a mechanical keyboard, but it's one of the Microsoft ergonomic keyboards from probably 2000 five or something. So I've had it for a long time and it's cheap $50 keyboard, but I really like the ergonomic style of it. And I haven't really found another one that really just had that same, you know, just natural feel to it without breaking the bank. And of course, you know, what good is uh, your computer without a mouse? So I have a Logitech MX Masters 2S mouse. I love the feel of this thing. And the scroll wheel on it, uh, one nice thing is it has a side scroll. So I can scroll left and right, or I could scroll up and down. And that's just been really helpful, especially when I'm looking at code. I can easily scroll left and right without having to, you know, find the keyboard, hit control, and then scroll up and down to remember which way goes which. So that's been really helpful and also helps with my video editing on the Director Ruby screencast. But overall, I, I don't know what I would do without this mouse. It's definitely my favorite mouse that I've had to date. And I think that that about does it as far as my uh, peripherals. I really don't have too much plugged into the Mac except for the monitors. I do have, oh, I guess uh, this is a really important bit. I have a Go Drive. And I call it a go drive because I told my wife that if we are ever in a life and death emergency, you know, don't worry about any of my computer stuff. You know, just forget it. Let it all burn up. You know, I don't care about it. You know, my kids and my wife's safety and my safety, I'm excluding my cat because he's still secondary here. Their safety is first. So, but if she has a split second, to grab anything out of my office, I have a hard drive, external hard drive that's encrypted and it backs up all of my life's work. So I also back it up to the cloud, but the cloud backup may not always be as accurate as this drive because it has my time machine backup, which I'm not pushing up to the cloud, but all my code and other stuff is getting pushed up to the cloud. So having my Go drive is really critical just for the assurance that my data is backed up with time machine and with all of the different code that I work on. So to me, that's something where if I were to lose my family pictures or anything like that, I would be devastated. You know, that's five years worth of my kids' lives that I would only have within my memory. So having a good backup system and, you know, if you only have a single backup, so if you only have a drive connected for Time Machine, I don't really consider that a backup. Backup exists in two different types of mediums and in two different physical locations. So, you know, make sure you always back up your work and stuff like that. So I think that really is my development environment. I really don't have anything else too crazy going on with it. Uh, it's really just those few things. 
You know, I, I've struggled with the backup drives personally because, uh, so you work on a great big Mac Pro that is uh, stationary, just stays there. You're not, you're not throwing your Mac Pro under your arm and heading out. Uh, the problem that yeah. I found, <laughs> that would be interesting. Uh, the problem that I found is that I'm constantly moving my laptop. So I plug it in and it's doing its thing and I'm working and then I go and I take my laptop with me. So it's a constant unmounting of this drive and uh, more times than not, I unmount it incorrectly. And every time I do it, it says, hey, you did it wrong. And this overwhelming sense of like guilt and fear like hits me. <laughs> and so, yeah. like, all right, well, did I just screw up my total drive? Is it worth it? And so I haven't been doing backups because of that, because of the convenience factor. Have you, have you run into that before? So I do have a work laptop, which I back up and I don't back it up every single day because all of my code is pushed up to the code repository. But if I need to, you know, change some, add a new extension to my editor or install a new program or something, then getting back to productivity is the main goal. So using the time machine backup to restore to a previous point, you want it to be a recent point. So at least once a week or at the very longest every other week, I'll plug in a USB drive, which it's a four terabyte USB drive. It's butts powered, so you don't need to plug it into the wall or anything, and I'll run the time machine backups on it. So, you know, whatever your situation is, if you do have a physical drive that you're able to plug in and actually wait for it to do the backup, then that's ideal. Uh, but you can also look into other services for backups. I know Backblaze, I think it's Backblaze, they have a service where you can pay a, a few dollars a month to have it remotely backed up to an external service. And I don't know how the restoration would really go. You're not really going to be as productive getting back to work uh, as you would having a local, you know, on-premise physical drive. But, you know, it is something where your data is still there and you could retrieve it if you had to. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, I think for me, at least, part of my backup story is that I live within the Apple ecosystem. And, uh, you know, I, I have my Mac, I have my, my phone, I have my watch, I have my, like, 40 iPads that I have laying around this house. And they all, they all back up to iCloud. Uh, like, all of my documents folder, my desktop folder, everything that's, that is, I would consider that would be important to back up does get backed up. So the, this morning, so the, the date that we're recording this is October 30th. And today they had the, the announcement of the new iPad this morning. And it, it looks pretty fantastic, like really fantastic. And I think one of the biggest, and I, I was sitting here watching it and I told my wife, I said, this is the first time where I actually feel like this could compete with an actual desktop computer. So I'm curious about maybe your experience and we could talk about my experience in perhaps hosting your, your development environment online. So there, there's some pros to that. Uh, one is that it costs a heck of a lot less than going out and buying a, a high-end computer. For example, if you wanted to get into uh, Ruby on Rails and you're, you're a beginner, perhaps uh, if you have an iPad or if you have an old computer, it might be easier just to set up a cloud IDE and a cloud environment to be able to do your work. Have you had uh, any experience with that? Yeah, so 
Amazon recently purchased Cloud9, which is a online IDE, and you can spin up a development environment, which basically it just creates a EC2 instance and then a self-hosted version of the C9 or Cloud9. And that's pretty functional, you know, as far as being able to get the work done, you're able to do it. However, my main problem with that is chances are you may already have a development machine one way or another. And if you, if it's a stationary desktop or iMac, then that's not very feasible to take on the go. But what I do have is a iPad Pro, which I will take on the go with me. And I have a VPN server set up at home so I can VPN directly into my home network. So all my traffic is encrypted and going through my home network at home. I'm actually blessed to have a one gigabit connection up and down and it's a unmetered. So I'm not, I don't have any data caps. So I can do, you know, basically as much you know, tethering to my home network or VPNing, tunneling into my home network is that one without consequence. And with that kind of bandwidth, I'm not hindered by the speeds of the internet. So on the iPad Pro, I have a program called Blink, which is a SSH terminal. So I can SSH into my home network or rather my development machine, my iMac Pro. And from there, I can get access to all my code so it's still remotely stored on the iMac Pro. But then I can use Vim to do all my editing. So between that and then also having multiple sessions of the SSH into my home machine, I can launch Ingrok, which is a uh, basically exposes local ports without having to open up pinholes on your firewall. And then from the iPad, I would be able to access my browser, go to that Ingrok URL, and then access the rail server that's running. So doing something like that makes it a pretty functional development environment, even though nothing is actually local on that machine. But I don't like doing it. I don't like, you know, I, I wouldn't want, I don't think it's a sustainable model. If I'm in a pinch or something, for example, I was at a, at a play with my kids. I just happened to have my iPad there and I saw an error pop up on a uh, service and I'm like, oh, well, crap. We have 30 minutes before the show starts. I want to quickly fix this. So I was able to, you know, get on there, get the code changes and deployments done, you know, within 20 minutes. And that was enough time to, you know, do it with this kind of setup. So it's really, you know, usable from that standpoint, you know, on the go in the pinch, you had to make some changes. It's a lot better than turning your phone sideways to try to do things. But it's not a sustainable thing. I would not want to do that for an entire week to use the iPad for the development machine. So there is, you know, it, in a pinch, it's great, but long term, it's not really usable, in my opinion. I kind of agree with you. I, I've <laughs> seen it. <laughs> I've, I'm 80% with you. Uh, I've seen it used. 
quite a bit. My brother has a company that, and that's all the development he does. All of his development is done online. And it's, it's using these IDEs like Cloud9 to, to make that work. Now, uh, I think the pros of that is that you always have a platform that if you're training or, or you want something where anybody can log in and like uh, start working on it immediately, that might be a good way to go. His company is, is configured that way. Uh, whereas if you do have a single developer or something like that, uh, it might not be as ideal. How, um, I guess the pros of that might be that you can code from anywhere, quite literally with anybody's computer. Like if I'm over at my parents' house and something comes up, I can hop on and like on their computer and just through a browser start being effective immediately. But I agree, it's, it's not for everybody. I, I'm glad that it does exist though. I think that it's something that does need to exist. And I believe, and I can't remember who it is, but it's not Cloud9. It's another one that actually will sync with your computer so that you can do all of your development locally, but it just pushes up automatically to that remote server. Anyway, yeah. So I think that I have become accustomed or spoiled with screen real estate and going to a smaller screen, solo screen like the iPad, I think is where my biggest problem is because it does hurt the productivity. You know, I'm definitely not as fast developing on the iPad as I am on a true desktop machine or a laptop. So I think that has to factor in as well when you're talking about long-term. Long-term, you know, it's important to be productive. You know, sure, I would get faster and faster, you know, but only to a certain degree. There's having to switch, you know, from the terminal over or from them over to the browser. And you're not going to be able to get that really on the same screen. You have the split view, but then you're losing your real estate of your editor if you're trying to make changes or with the browser if you're trying to test things. And I think that's my biggest hesitation with recommending that as a, you know, permanent solution. If that is the only solution you can afford, then that's great because otherwise you would not be coding at all. So I think that from that standpoint, you're right that uh, it is a viable solution when no other solution is possible. But if you do have the resources, you know, like your, your friend or brother's company, then I don't think that's really sustainable. However, on the flip side, that does mean that you can just walk into any Best Buy, Apple Store, Fry's or whatever, pick up a new iPad, get back to the office, load in your account, and then you start working again. It's not something where you have to spend an entire day reprovisioning your development environment because it's all cloud hosted. So from that productivity standpoint, I think it's good. But how often does that actually happen? So are you really saving too much time that you would have saved having a actual laptop? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. It really is a great question. I think about the audience that we cater to with Ruby Rogues, and I'm wondering where they are in this cycle. Are they more beginner where they are, they might be more strapped for cash and need to have those entry points to becoming effective where it might not cost a lot or perhaps a little bit more advanced where, you know, likely they already have a pretty high-end MacBook Pro or whatever to, to get the job done. Yeah, 
you know, I would say today, if you don't have a lot of money and you want to get into development, you don't have to go out and buy a Mac. You know, there's a lot of alternatives, but if, you know, also the cloud hosting isn't really your thing, you know, there's still a lot of options. You are able to use Windows to develop a Ruby on Rails application, but you want to do it properly. So you have a couple of different options there. You have Docker that you're able to, you know, put your Ruby interpreter on. You're still able to use Windows as your main editor and do everything on there, but your Ruby and your code is running on Docker. And there's also the WSL or the Windows subsystem for Linux, where you're able to run a Ubuntu instance and then have your interpreter within Ubuntu. You have access to the files and you're able to work on it work on your Rails application pretty seamlessly through that. So I actually did a uh, Drift Ruby episode. So I went out and bought a cheap, because I wanted to do this test. So I bought a really cheap Dell laptop. And it's, you know, I think I paid under $700 for it. So I would market that as a reasonably priced development machine, if not a bargain development machine. Because I think most computers you would spend probably at least five or six hundred dollars, so save up you know a little bit more for a seven hundred dollar one. But even then, this one was on the higher end of really what I wanted. But you could get away with doing a five hundred dollar Windows machine and still be able to learn how to program on it. So I think that on the budget mind, I wouldn't spend the money on a Mac. Although they did just announce the, you know, October 30th uh, event today, the Mac Mini, which to me, that makes it a viable entry-level development machine. I think that they have made a lot of strides with that. So, you know, if you haven't bought a computer yet, if you do want to get into Ruby development, then a Mac Mini may be a good entry-level option if you don't mind the fixed non-portability of it. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now, and it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Let's take, a, let's take a shift here and let's talk about the software developer environment. And one of our panelists, Nate Hopkins, is not on today, but he told me that um, I'm Vim all the way. You can't change me. Never will. <laughs> and I think Chuck is Emacs as well. Like, you can't change Chuck's mind. He's, he's going to be Emacs all uh- Max. I think that he's dabbled in VS Code a little bit. I don't know if he's completely sold on it, but with the uh, Emacs plugin or extension bindings, uh, I think he has given it a bit more of a fair trial. Cool. Cool. So what, what do you do? I use VS Code. 
you know, and I know that, you know, initially when uh, VS Code first came out, uh, I was hopping between Atom and Sublime Text. And I just had this real, you know, like, why is, you know, Microsoft trying to enter in the space? It's horrible. But after using VS Code, after giving it, you know, setting aside my own ego and, you know, all that crap, once I gave it a fair shot, I love it. It's, to me, it is fast or at least fast enough. It is highly usable and functional. You're able to customize it to a way where it can really just be your own environment. And now with the live share being able to uh, peer remotely with someone else, I think it's extremely usable. Yeah, 100%. In fact, I was recently at the GitHub Universe conference and I met the lead engineer behind VS Code and he was pretty excited. They just recently announced a GitHub pull request integration. So you can actually review pull requests directly inside of VS Code. It's fantastic. And I think one of the, there's a lot of, there's a lot of questions behind the new acquisition of GitHub by Microsoft based on all of the conversations that I've had and my gut feeling, this is going to be one of the best things that could have happened for for open source developers and for developers out there. They are really, really making some heavy strides. And VS Code is one of them. I've been using VS Code now for quite a while. And uh, at first, I, it was kind of a memory hog. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it, it, it was a resource hog. And then that kind of went away. And it might have been just a bad configuration or a plugin that I was using. But, but now it's definitely my go-to. The integrated terminal, the for Elixir development, it's got the Elixir LS, which is, a, I can't remember what it's about, but it actually does live checking of your code as you write it. And yeah, a whole bunch of stuff. Language service. Yeah, it's the Elixir language service. And by the way, Chuck did switch back over to v, switch to VS Code. So yay. Good job, Chuck. <laughs> so yeah, I've been using that as well. Pulling me out of Sublime Text was a really, really hard thing. I've been a big Sublime Text fan for so long, but it seems like the money and the developer focus is behind VS Code, which for better or for worse, enabled it to become a far, far superior product. Yeah. And I thought Sublime Text was awesome. It was fast, it was highly usable, but I really got tired of the four-year-long beta and the lack of you know expanding it because there is so much when you are talking about just a plain text editor and when there's IDEs, you don't have to go the full IDE route like RubyMine, but there are some quality of life differences that you can add in. And the extension management on Sublime Text just, it wasn't up to par. You know, not, not like it is in Atom or VS Code. And that was a big deterrent for me because I like having the GUI that VS Code provides for the extensions. It makes it very easy to use to where I don't even have to think about it. I could just get in there, start using it, do a search and find things. That wasn't really the same with Sublime Text. You know, it was more of a process to find the correct plugin that you want and then to install it. So I think it's, you know, uh, VS Code has definitely won my heart over. And I wonder what it means with the GitHub Microsoft acquisition, because I think that just was finalized the other day. 
I wonder what that's going to mean for Adam and its editor, or if they're going to combine forces, or if they're just going to kind of leave it alone for a little bit. Uh, my guess would be that they would leave it alone and let them both grow independently. But yeah, I'm sure this completely my guess, but I'm sure that they will connect the two teams. But, you know, they both have such a following. And think about how much work has gone into Adam by those people not being paid to work on it. And to just kind of have that pushed aside, that would be a pretty hard pill to swallow. So, yeah. But, you know, at the same time, it's a company and at some point the bobs are going to come in. It's going to be a Betamax or VHS, you know, internal fight, I think. So you don't need two different editors, you know, that accomplish the same thing. I disagree with you. I think that an editor is like a pair of socks or like, I don't know, it's, it's very much catered to an individual. Like you might prefer Adam over VS Code where I might prefer VS Code over Adam. Uh, and we might have our own very specific reasons. What, what likely would end up happening is not merging the two, but they will start diverting in. They might become more different from each other where the guys behind Matt, the, the people behind Adam might say, oh, well, they've kind of done really well over here. So maybe we'll just focus on this more. Or, or something like that. I think Adam is very heavy into React and React Native and all that stuff as well, if I remember right. I just don't see him shutting down a project. I don't think that that's their intent. Yeah, I mean, it's not like a company would ever just, you know, cancel something after one season, <clears throat> Fox. So, I don't know. I, I'm interested to see where it goes because I really liked Adam. You know, I originally switched from sublime text to adam uh when it was first announced because i you know really like and support github but the editor was just really slow to me it wasn't really usable especially coming from sublime text which was super fast so i had ended up switching back to sublime and then i had eventually finally moved over to vs code there is one thing that I still use Sublime for and will always likely use Sublime for is opening very large files. You can open a half a gig file in Sublime and it might take five minutes to load, but you can, you can do it. Whereas if you load it in any other editor, it just crashes, right? And I don't know why it works so well in Sublime, but Sublime really handles very large files easily. Now, that also goes back to like, why am I opening large files? <laughs> Yeah. But, but that's that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but I have done it in the past. It's a log file. Don't lie. So, yes, there we go. <laughs> Honestly, I think the majority of those large files are SQL files. They're mm-hmm. just Postgres dumps. So beyond your editor, I had written up a blog post about this. Not, uh, I guess it has been a, over a year now about just some of the different tools that I use on my development environment. What browser do you prefer? You know, because you're on a Mac, so, and you're kind of a Mac fanboy. So do you stick with Safari? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I use Safari to watch Apple events. <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore. Oh, really? Um, yes. Never you use Chrome that. now. Yeah. So, uh, Apple events now can stream on Chrome, which is nice. <laughs> that is nice. Um, no, Apple, the Safari is very nice. Um Safari is a great browser for people who are not developers. Uh, Their developer tools are inferior in my view. Um, The nice thing about Safari, though, is that it's lightweight, very lightweight, very fast. Uh, Nate, uh, the other panelist, uses Safari exclusively for development. Uh, 
I think that was something that he just decided, I want to give it a shot. I want to give it some time. And eventually it became uh, his go-to. Now, I've been, I've been kind of like a, a browser whore going from bedroom to bedroom. <laughs> it's like mm-hmm. I, I spend some time with, Net, uh, with uh, um, Firefox. Then I spend some time with Chrome. Then I spend some time with uh, Brave. And I've even used Opera for a while. And I always tend to fall back into the Chrome. Now, I, I, I have a massive problem with Chrome. Uh, which is that they are just, it's basically like setting a big brother to watch every single thing that you do. And that, that it's good that it has that, this browser knows me so well to where it knows exactly what I wanted to do and all this stuff, but it also knows me so well that Google can sell my data and they do sell my data. So one of the up and coming browsers, which I've been again, trying to force myself to use and, uh, which I think they came out with an update last week or two weeks ago where they finally support extensions, uh, Chrome extensions, is uh, the Brave browser. Mm-hmm. Now, Brave, Brave is a fantastic browser. It works very well for development, but it also has a security as top of mind and it allows you to be able to support all of those projects out there that you like through what they call a basic attention token um, and I don't know if I should get into that, but uh, basically it allows you to say, hey, I think that places that I visit most often should be rewarded in some fashion. And so if this browser is an effort to help solve the issue of that advertising was trying to solve so for so long, right? Advertisers are very interested in in micro-targeting these people and and uh, profiling and making sure that they get the ad in front of the right type of person and that type of person could be like somebody who enjoys football, somebody who enjoy, you know, who lives in Western United States, somebody, you know, like all this stuff that's kind of creepy that they can know who you are. Well, the Brave browser is trying to combat that by providing something called the uh, basic attention token, which, um, which allows you to say, hey, I just want to support financially all those websites that I visit. And you can pick and choose which ones. They've got some great stuff going on. I think they're going to be huge in the future, huge, huge, huge. But it's still, when I pick a browser, I always say, okay, which one can I do my job the best at? And it, they're getting there. They're not there yet, but they're getting there. I thought Brave was based on the Firefox engine or is it on the Chrome engine? But it just, Chrome. okay, Chromium. Chromium. Cool. Mm-hmm. So with Brave, I also read uh, a few years ago, weren't they doing something with the blockchain and Bitcoin? Or something like that with rewarding you for browsing or something like that? That's what the basic attention token is. And I think that it's being okay. led by Brennan Ike. So it takes somebody with that, you know, that, type of, that type of brilliance to say, you know what, we can solve this problem if we just make the browser the tool of distribution for, for you basically you reward value and value is typically decided by how long do you spend on a website. So this is, this is their effort to get that done. Cool. Yeah. I've heard of Brave. I still use Chrome uh, just because I do like the extensions at the time Brave did not support them, but I think it's also important why you pick a certain browser you know, to me, I can browse a website using Safari, Firefox, or Chrome. But when we're talking about development, it's important to know who your target audience is when you are going to be browsing. And you need to do some kind of check with the market to see 
Does this industry mostly use Windows computers that are heavily locked down like banks so you can only support a older version of IE? Then that's something that if that's going to be your primary customer base, you're going to have to have a separate laptop or something or a VM running on your Mac to have that kind of browser running and use that as your primary browser for testing. You know, I think that a lot of times we as a developer will test with whatever browser that we personally like, whether it is Internet Explorer, Firefox, Safari, or whatever. But I would argue that you should use whatever browser that has the most market shares in that industry. And right now, as a global market share, I think Chrome has surpassed 60% of the share. So coming in next is Firefox and then Internet Explorer. And then you have some of the smaller ones like Safari, Edge, and Opera. So I think that it's a safe bet you know, to use something like Brave because that is using the Chromium engine or to use Chrome itself if you know, you're kind of targeting a global market. You know what? The, uh, one of the weirdest things, not weirdest, but kind of uh, the browser that kind of stuck in there is the Android browser. It's it's interesting how much uh, traffic the Android browser generates because it's the, the default for Android. Anyway, just a side note, I, I remember hearing about that before. I thought that was fascinating. You want to switch over to other parts? I'll, I'll start off. So the rest of my tech stack software-wise uh, is this. I use Polymail for email. And the reason I use Polymail is because it is built for sales. And my role right now is less development and more in sales for CodeFund. I use things to keep me on track for what I'm doing. I use Slack, of course. I use Brave Browser as oftentimes my primary. iTerm 3 is uh, my preferred. Now, with iTerm, I use something called Mert. And Mert is, allows you to run a single command and it will launch your complete developer environment in one terminal window and it'll split the panes up for you. So it's pretty neat. Other things that I'm using are, I'm kind of looking through, I use uh, Fantastical for my calendar and I use Bear for my note taking. Bear is pretty awesome. It's uh, very similar to, it's basically allowing you to take uh, notes uh, similar to the, you know, the notes app in Mac, but you can tag them, you can write it in Markdown and it's, it's pretty fantastic. So those are the apps that I use. What about you? I use, I also use iTerm3. Uh, I tried HyperTerminal uh, for a little bit, but, you know, never really stuck with it. So iTerm3 works really well for my needs. I too use Slack. I can't get away with it. I'm on eight different Slack channels or Slack groups. Luckily, I have most of the channels muted, so I only get notified when I'm pinged. But I've recently started using Discord a little bit more, which I really hate having to have Slack and Discord and Microsoft Teams open. It's really kind of annoying. But, you know, just, you know, that's the way life is. Luckily, I have enough RAM to have all those running. As far as the other tools, uh, one that I don't think I could live without is one called Spectacle. And that's the way it's a extension. So it just kind of runs in the background, gives you uh, 
key shortcuts to rearrange windows. So kind of like the on a Microsoft Windows computer, you can hit the Windows key and then a arrow. You know, with this, I can just hit, you know, a combination of the command control or shift and then an arrow key and it'll anchor it on the top left, bottom right, on the two thirds side of the screen or, you know, split view half and half. So being able to quickly arrange my windows is uh, really important for me, especially with having a multiple monitor, a lot of real estate. As far as the other tools, I don't think that I really have anything else that is mission critical to my environment. I try to keep it pretty slim and simple. I do have one that I really like having is... It's easy res and it's a, on the Mac store, it's a free download where you can quickly adjust the screen resolution of your desktops. And that's really important whenever I'm doing a screen share or a recording, a screencast, because I need to target my audience who's going to be seeing this content so that I'm not displaying a 5K monitor to them, but rather something scaled down. So it's going to be easy on their eyes. The other one that I don't use very often, but I keep a subscription just because it does come in handy is Parallels. So I have a uh, MSDN enterprise license. So I get all of the Microsoft junk uh, with that license. So every copy of Windows or Office that I need. And because we are testing with several different uh, browsers and stuff like that, that we have to just maintain compatibility for. Having Parallels is extremely handy. So I will launch a Windows 7 or Windows 10 instance to be able to back check, you know, if a QA person finds a issue with Internet Explorer 11, this version, I can pretty quickly spin up that instance. And I guess it's not really so much for development, but uh, two other programs that I really love is ScreenFlow. That's what I record all the Director Ruby screencasts on. And then also uh, Apple Motion, which is kind of, I forget the Adobe counterpart, but uh, After Effects, Adobe After Effects. So it allows you to create nice little intro animations and stuff. So I use that for the screencast as well. Uh, and also use the ScreenFlow if I just need to record a quick little product owner demo or something like that. I'll just throw it into ScreenFlow real quick and then ship that off. Very cool. Uh, a couple of more tools that I use real quick is I use 1Password, which uh, mm -hmm. they recently came out with an update, which now allows you to select the the username and password directly in the form. That was one of the biggest com complaints I had before. So one password is one of the things. And of course, um, I'm constantly using a tool called Metabase. Metabase is a way for you to be able to have a GUI over your, your database, whether it be Postgres, Mongo, anything that you can think of. It's a solid GUI that where you can set up dashboards, embeddable dashboards, reporting tools, and of course, just the ability to query and it's 100% open source. So that's uh, that'll probably be the last thing that I share on, on my tooling, but that seems to follow me everywhere I go. Everything that I do, I always t attack in Metabase as well because they're, they're so fantastic. Mm -hmm. So what do you uh, like 1Password over LastPass? Have you heard of LastPass? Oh, sure. Yeah. So I'm kind of a UX geek. I don't like bad UX. And I think LastPass has had bad UX in my view. 
But the other thing is that I've been using 1Password for so long that it's got tons and tons and tons of data of mine. And I guess there's some, some loyalty there in that it just works everywhere. And it has all of my data so I can get up and rolling on any new computer very quickly. I just set up 1Password and now I, I basically can access everything that I've done. Although you can do that as well with, with LastPass. It, it might be one of those things where it's beta versus you know VHS, who knows. It does tend to be the one that is promoted by Apple more and perhaps that's why I, I trusted it more. Mm-hmm. So does 1Password have a freemium model, free pricing plan? Or do you... Um, the like two dollars, three dollars a month. Yeah, I, I pay for it. I honestly don't know if they have a free plan. Uh, to me, okay. you know, working in the in the fields that I work in, security is critical, and making sure that I think that if I'm not paying for something, then somehow I am paying for it in other ways. And I'd rather know what I'm paying. You know, I'd rather pay with money than with something else, especially yeah. when it comes to tools around security. Keep in mind that LastPass is owned by LogMeIn, which is a huge company who has a lot of years in uh, remote access security. So, you know, it's a company that I've used for their zero config VPN tunneling Hamachi and also the LogMeIn for remote support. So it's a company that I've trusted in the past and have used for, you know, quite a number of years. Yeah. I'm going to link a, a blog post here that is basically comparing all of the, uh, the 2000, you know, there's so many comparison blog posts that come out, but here's one of them. It compares one password and last pass and key pass and robo form. And uh, again, I think it's one of those things that maybe it's just a matter of preference to me. I prefer one password and to you, you yep. prefer LastPass. And I'm just going to say for as long as I can remember, LastPass had had the form selector for the username and password and stuff. So just throwing that out there. Oh, no, no, no. A hundred percent. You know, like Apple just came out with their iPad with like, wow, this pen actually uh, magnetically connects to, to the iPad. Wow. What ingenuity. And yet, you know, Microsoft Surface Pro has been doing that forever. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we all, we all steal from each other. That's, that's the beauty of what we do. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, is there anything else on your development environment people need to know about? Any uh, banking passwords or anything you like to share? <laughs> banking passwords, <laughs> not much there. No, you know, I, I could get into the whole crypto side of things and crypto management and that kind of stuff, but I'm not going to. I am excited about where we're at. Mojave has been, I, I really like Mojave with the upgrade for the desktop folding, but I do not like Mojave for the constant amount of resets that I've had to do, although it is getting better. You know, I, I'm, I don't know. I just, I'm, you get behind, you, you get behind your computer and you realize like, oh, this is like a finely configured machine that I am living in for the next eight hours every day. And uh, I don't know. It's fun. I, I love what I do. Yeah, same here. I've also made the jump to 1014 and not had any problems with it. So I don't know what reset issues you're having, but I've not really experienced any major setbacks. I found out that a large majority of them were because of Elixir and because of VS Code. And hmm. it, would just, it would just leak, 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 leak. Uh, well, cool. Should we move on to picks? Uh, honestly, I think that this whole episode has been picks. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything I can pick beyond what I've said so far. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers. 
or maybe you are, but no job offers, or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or are looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. I'll start then with the pick. In relation to my environment, I do have a couple of used, they're very used, Dell Rack servers, R710s in my basement that I run Proxmox on. So Proxmox is my first pick. It's a uh, KVM uh, LXC hypervisor, which runs on bare metal, and it allows you to manage and spin up new virtual machines extremely fast and also able to, uh, you know, manage them. So that's what I use instead of, you know, Docker or anything else. But on there, my second pick, I'm running a uh, kind of a DNS server called Pihole. And Pihole is allowing you to basically set that as your DNS server. And it's going to filter out ads or any of the unwanted junk on your network. So Pihole, I can get some stats on just how much bandwidth it has you know, saved me, which you know, I really don't care about. But overall, you know, it does give you apparent speed because now your browser's not having to load up, you know, whatever kind of JavaScript or junk, make whatever kind of request, 40%. And this just with normal browsing habits on a day-to-day development is blocked 40% of the requests. And I've had zero false uh, blocks where it's something that I did not want blocked. So its list is really good at finding out, you know, what it needs to let through and what is, you know, needs to get blocked. So 40%, that's a pretty big number. You know, if it was 5 to 10%, I would say, you know, not that big of a deal, not that much of improvement, but 40% is pretty insanely huge. All right, what are your picks, Eric? Or are you just going to say the show? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, the show is a, a big pick. I just got back from a, a full month of traveling. Um, I've been to four conferences in the past month, and uh, my legs are tired. Everything is tired. <laughs> I'm tired. Uh, and I'm glad it's all over. But all of these conferences centered around open source and um, heavily in the open source sustainability area. Uh, I'm super excited about what's happening. Um, I'm going to pick uh, all of those people who are striving to help fund and help sustain and help grow the open source ecosystem. We are at a time right now where the efforts of the few cannot be sustained to help us continue to grow open source. We It needs for us to make some changes in order for us to be able to rely on open source in the future because the growth and the adoption is happening so, 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 so fast. So I want to extend my thanks to all of those people who are who are working and thinking about this problem and thinking about solutions. And yeah, that is my pick. Cool. All right. Well, it was good talking with you and... You know, look forward to more of these fun conversations. Now, it's definitely a change from, I think, last year we did on Halloween. We did our uh, scary deployment stories or scary 
server. So this is a bit more on the lighter side of things this Halloween. Yeah, I, I can't believe it's been a year already. That's awesome. All right. Well, happy Halloween. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.